This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's already really easy to vote in Colorado, but Democrats in the legislature want to make it even easier. They are also looking for ways to shine more light on dark money in elections. CPR's Sam Brash has been tracking bills like these at the Capitol. He joins us with an update. Hi, Sam. Hey, Ryan. Why don't we start with the biggest thing lawmakers are trying to do in this arena? What is it? Well, I'd say it's this uh, omnibus election bill called the Colorado Votes Act. And what this is, is really changing parts of the electoral process that voters really interact with. So think uh, longer voting hours and adding uh, drop boxes where you can uh, slide in your mail-in ballot and increasing polling centers in the days before Election Day if you do want to vote in person. Okay, you use that word omnibus. It's Mm -hmm. a word lawmakers like to use to mean all-encompassing. But what you laid out, the details there, um, sound pretty user-friendly in terms of changes. Are there any concerns about them, though? I'd say uh, the most criticism we've seen comes from a number of county clerks who just took issue with the original version of the bill. Uh, Clerks uh, are the foot soldiers of Colorado elections, right? They run the vote centers, the drop-bop boxes, all these things. And they packed the first hearing on this bill saying it was too expensive. You know, just, you know, one number that really jumped out to my mind, one of those little drop boxes costs about $10,000. And they were worried that uh, costs would fall on them. And they also pointed out that uh, a lot of the bill's requirements created some redundancies, maybe putting a polling center on a college campus when there was another one really nearby already. So the sponsors have made dozens of amendments to this bill to clean it up, to make it cheaper, and they also found state money to cover the cost. Okay. When you say a drop box, you mean one of those big fortified boxes? Yeah, right. The the big metal white things. Yeah. $10,000. I know. Maybe I should get into the business of building one for (laughs) $8,000 and competing. Uh, Well, so did county clerks get on board with the kinds of changes you talked about? I'd say after all these amendments, uh, their concerns kind of cooled off, but a number are still against this bill. They think Colorado's election system already works great. You know, our election laws are based uh, in large part on this 2013 reform. Uh, that Democrats passed kind of the last time they had a trifecta at the legislature. And the clerks have come to really like the system, and they're not really sure why Democrats are trying to change it and improve it again. Yeah, let's get to the deeper questions here. Why do they want to change things? I mean, Colorado consistently has some of the highest turnout in the country, and experts hold this state up as a model for election security. I mean, the line I've heard from Democrats is that, yeah, Colorado's voting system is great, but it got that way through relentless modernization. Uh, Democratic Secretary of State Jenna Griswold has been a big cheerleader on this bill and the other election reform bills working their way through the Capitol. And she says it's especially important to make voting easier now because when you look at Republican states, they're, they're working to make it a lot harder. Leading does not stop when we hit certain benchmarks. Rather, leadership is dedication to constant improvement. With all that we have done, with all that we have accomplished, there's still more that we can do to make sure that our democracy is accessible to every voter in the state. So there's a national dynamic at play here. Definitely. I mean, if you look at the U.S. House after Democrats took that national chamber uh, last November, their their first bill was this sweeping voting rights bill. I mean, that's dead on the arrival, dead on arrival in the U.S. Senate. 
But in states where Democrats won majorities, like Colorado, uh, one of the issues they're really championing championing, uh, championing is uh, working on ways to get more people to the polls. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and CPR's Sam Brash joins us to talk about bills in the state legislature that have to do with the sort of functioning of our democracy. You've also been covering, Sam, a proposal aimed at getting as many people as possible registered to vote. Uh, relying on information from the DMV and Medicaid. And the idea is that people would be registered unless they actively opt out. Where does that bill stand now? So the bill is uh, now in front of the uh, full Senate chamber. I think they have to take a final vote on it. Uh, and it's and it's sort of interesting because Colorado already has an automatic voter registration system. This would just change how that opt-out works. So mm-hmm. instead of you going into the DMV and being asked, hey, is it okay if we use this information to register you to vote? Instead, you'd get a postcard after the fact, and you'd have to send it back to be opting out and to opt out of registering. Uh, if you don't return it, then you're automatically registered, I guess. Right. Yeah. After 20 days. So if you don't return that card um, after 20 days, you're you're on the voter rolls anyway as an unaffiliated voter. So this test takes the existing automatic voter registration system and I'd say makes it more automatic. Uh, Republicans worry that could mean more non-citizens get swept up into the system. Democrats say it'd actually be maybe better because they would have uh, clearer roles and would be doing these checks automatically. Um, But Republicans also worry that it removes voter registration as a personal responsibility and shifts that on to the state. Uh, So that's kind of where we stand on that one. So we have this election law uh, update here, a voter registration update. Is there anything else you should clue us in on, Sam? Yeah, I mean, Ryan, this session with with Democrats in charge, there's like always more to talk about. Uh It's kind of amazing. Uh, The other bill I note is meant to deal with uh, dark money in politics. It requires nonprofits and labor unions to disclose their top donors if they give more than $10,000 to basically what's the state level equivalent of a super PAC. And the hope is that'll give, you know, the public and and journalists like us a chance to figure out who's behind different campaigns. Because in a lot of instances, these nonprofits are kind of a way to to screen the identity of whoever is actually backing certain ideas, initiatives, uh, whatever. How partisan is that conversation at the state capitol? I mean, if Republicans are pushing back, what are they saying? Uh, I, I, to be totally honest, I haven't checked in too much with Republicans on this bill. Um, I can tell you in general, when I've come up against these dark money issues, what they say is that people have a right to uh, give to political campaigns anonymously. And it's important to preserve that right. They often point back to the Federalist Papers, many of which were, you know, authored anonymously by the founding fathers. And they say it's important for people to be able to have a political opinion and not necessarily attach their name to it. Sam, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. CPR Sam Brash is tracking bills related to how Colorado's democracy functions. Lawmakers have until next Friday to finish their work for the year. Sam, of course, is the host of Purplish, our podcast about Colorado politics. A new episode is in the works. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm going to describe a political cartoon I saw recently. It's about an adult theme, just to warn you. In this cartoon, a couple, 
is making love. The woman says, I'm not on birth control. And her partner replies, don't worry, I identify as a 12-year-old girl. A commentary on gender identity today. Facebook flagged it. In other cases, Jim Bob Pelletieri of Parker, Colorado, has had his work taken down entirely from social media. His cartoons are branded as Made by Jim Bob. Despite the controversy, or perhaps because of it, he has gotten a job at the Washington Examiner as a political cartoonist. And Jim Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So first off, the cartoon that I just described, what's your understanding about why it was flagged? Um, I think based on some of the policies in social media, if there's any alluding to a target uh, of a group of people or a person specific to their sexuality, their race, etc., they sometimes view it as an attack versus like an inquiry. And how do you view it? What are you trying to achieve with that cartoon? Well, what I like to do is bring humor to conversations that are still kind of up in the air that people actually enjoy talking about. For a lot of these things that get censored, I think they're being censored on behalf of a very small minority of people who would consider it reprehensible or you can't touch that subject. For the most part, people I interact with, regardless of where they stand politically, are able to talk about these things, especially in person. Is this cartoon, though, mocking people with a different gender identity? No, I don't believe it's mocking. I believe it's pointing out a new context for viewing identity and how if you place it in reality in certain circumstances, there are some limitations to that. That is to say, you might feel one way, but biologically, yes. it's still possible for the woman in that cartoon to get pregnant. Right. And what kind of discussion do you hope to generate with something like that? Well, I want to... I, I love the idea of people exploring relativism as a concept, but you can't really explore that without acknowledging reality. You have to put them together and have that difficult discussion about where is it confusing? Where can it mislead people? And any worthwhile conversation should have immediate opposition. Opposition is good. I, I think it's fair to call your work right-leaning, but I, I understand that you didn't always align with more conservative values. Do I have that right? Yeah, I would say most people who viewed it would say right-leaning, but I think uh, I consider myself like liberty-leaning. I'm libertarian in principle. I'm liberal in the sense that classical liberalism is something I really attach to as far as letting people do what they want so long as you don't use the government as a baton to hit people with. And that's been an evolution, a sort of political yeah. evolution for you? Yeah, there's there's been an evolution. I started, I lived in Los Angeles for 15 years. Um, I did some stand-up comedy. Being in that world is like being in a little, like, bubble, and it's great. Everyone agrees with you mostly, <laughs> uh, no matter what you say. Everyone seems to be on the better side of morality. But then I think when the election happened, you know, I, I voted for Obama twice, and I realized now that I was voting based on symbolism and feelings and that's a real man. Like he can cry. All these signals that I read that had nothing to do with policy, had nothing to do with I didn't want to I didn't want to know about drone bombing. I, I wanted to know about him being able to sing and dropping mics and being funny and charismatic. And uh, and I don't I saw that uh, I was kind of lying to myself. So I started some criticism there with him and I immediately got like strong uh, reactions from people in my 
my community and people in, in L.A. in general. And I realized, wow, that's where if you're going to be an artist and you're going to point out things, you got to make sure to point out things that are worth being attacked once you've said them. Um, so that means the content is worth being attacked and shining a light on. And if that's the case, be prepared to get you know, the opposition. And that's totally fine. Let's talk about that in the context of another of your cartoons. I think it got pulled from social media as well. It is a commentary on New Zealand changing its gun laws after the mass shooting there in March. In your illustration, one man says, good for New Zealand for banning guns. Another man asks, so terrorism works? Right. What's, What's your message there? That message is really an an important message. It's the exploration between acknowledging terrorism and trying to figure out ways to prevent it versus using it as a way to push policy. And those things can be very muddy and blurry, and that's understandable. But if you create an environment where policy is initiated moments after an attack, a terrorist attack, or anything that's very traumatic... What you're saying is that works to one side. I could see from the other view, it's like, no, we have to do something. We have to do something. But it's the same principle as like when we put the Boston bomber on the Rolling Stones magazine and made him look all sexy. Do you remember that? I do remember that. So that's a signal that says, if you do this, you will be on the cover. So that's a different topic because it's not policy driven. But it means if you do these things, you'll get a response and that's what terrorism is designed to do. And yet, let me, let me just come up with a, a simile here, a metaphor. When planes crash, you look at what caused the crash and you change the thing that crashed the plane. Right. So that's an incident and an immediate change in something that makes planes presumably safer. Sure. There might be people who say that's exactly what New Zealand did. Right. How is it different? It's different because when a plane crashes, there's no intent to crash the plane. You're strictly talking about mechanical errors that can be engineered into correction. Whereas when you talk about a violent attack, you're either talking about one or several individuals who have intent. So the difference is policy can legislate mechanical stuff. Whether that's a good or bad thing is a different conversation. Legislation cannot police intent. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the Colorado-based cartoonist whose work is known as Made by Jim Bob. His work has been picked up by the Washington Examiner. Now, your posts on Facebook and Instagram, really where you got your start, they generate a lot of comments. Uh, Sometimes you even jump in and stir the pot. Mm. Uh, But a lot of users accuse you of creating a home for hate speech a breeding ground for racism, homophobia, sexism. Do you feel any responsibility over what people say in the comments under your cartoons and the kind of conversation it sparks? Uh, Not really. Uh, If something is way over the top, like a threat, like violence or something, I'll probably self-edit and censor just because I know it's not productive. But if something is provocative and it's clearly someone's opinion, and I have the sense that they really believe that, I'm not going to take that away from them. Because I think people should say what they believe, even if it's wrong or reprehensible to some people. So you want to showcase that. It's not a breeding ground. It's more like, here, this is the topic. You, Everyone can comment on it. 
If you have a comment worth responding to, we'll see that. If it's not worth responding to, we won't, hopefully. 52% of Americans, including a majority of independents, say they are against the country becoming more politically correct. And they're upset that there are too many things people can't say anymore. That's according to an NPR poll from back in December. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think that's a cultural shift. And um, the word, I believe the word political correctness has a history too, where it's a way of silencing dissent. And it's a very convenient way because it's under the guise of fairness or protection over protected classes or, you know, bullying, anti-bullying and all these things. But really in practice, it doesn't have the same effect that as it's intended. So yeah, I, I anyone who's creative will eventually find their last straw with political correctness. I know a lot of comedians, they're all about it, all about it, all about it until they say the joke that they really like, that they know didn't have bad intention, and then they get attacked for it. The saying is you you don't care until the boot's on your neck. Um, again, people are strong enough to hear communications. As ugly as they can be, as misconstrued as they can be, as poorly crafted as they can be, I really think humans especially one-on-one, I want to stress that, are really capable of hearing each other out regardless of of content. That's the other thing I want to say is uh, there's been a a conflation of content and intent. It's really easy to look at content, have an emotional reaction. It doesn't matter what side you're on and attribute intent to the content. And it's hard to get out of that because you really believe it. You know, that person's hateful. They mean this. They don't like those people. All of these big generalizations. And um, I think humans do that. I think it's a human thing. You have sometimes appealed decisions by Facebook and Instagram. When they restore things or unflag things that they've flagged, uh, what are the arguments you're making? I, they don't really let you make an argument because I think you're interacting with a system, just huh. like a banking system. It's like, you know, you like want to appeal this thing and you used to be able to talk to a person and like give them a nice story and show them you're, you're a good person. But now it's pretty automatic and algorithmic. So I didn't really invest too much in that. I was just like, oh, I guess you can appeal it. Let me try that once. I'm really not. So you would like click a reason? Yeah, it would be like, uh-huh. I think you made a mistake. <laughs> but uh, I, to And then me, it that's... just gets kind of anonymously re-reviewed. I think so. I, huh. think, I think there's a person or a group of people that do it. But like, that's why I wrote a book. Like, the only reason I wrote a book is because they have the right to censor. They're, pub- they're basically publishing companies. So I would use persuasion to try to get them to change their policy because I don't think it's good for them or people. But that's a different conversation than getting the government involved. I really don't want it to go that way. I want them to be as biased as they want in their censorship. And that gives artists and people who express themselves pathways, clearer pathways to how to get their stuff out. And I think a resurgence of physical books and uh, meeting in person and talking to people in person is is in, in demand right now. And mm. I, I love that. I mean, the fact that I'm here... I think people who aren't really sure of each other's uh, stances should meet in person more. I think the physical space is the next frontier. Is the <laughs> it's so retro? It is. It is. It's like you it's like, sal- to... like salons yeah. from back in the day. You know? Yeah. Is there anything that feels off limits to you? Well, I have some rules uh, for drawing. Is it kind? 
Is it true and is it necessary? So those are subjective. So sometimes it's not kind, but it has to be said because it's necessary. Or it might be viewed as not kind. It's not intended to be not kind. But I, I go, is that true and is it necessary? And then if it's kind, that's even better. If you can get all three, you can attack subjects that a group of people on all sides of the spectrum can interact with because those three things are kind of there. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Colorado political cartoonist Jim Bob Pelletieri, a.k.a. Made by Jim Bob. He's just been picked up by the Washington Examiner. He's also the author of Savage Memes, Volume 1. Colorado's only approved spaceport is a step closer to its first launch. A new company has signed on to work at the facility east of DIA. PD Aerospace is developing a space plane that it hopes to use for research, space tourism, and high-speed global travel. Jim Seidlecki is with Spaceport Colorado. Both of us share the ambition of increasing access to space for everyday people. Moving forward, we plan to work with PD Aerospace and hopefully more operators to deliver just that. So this is a Japanese company, and it'll be one of two businesses using Spaceport Colorado. As that base grows, it hopes to attract a wide variety of firms. We believe that the canvas is somewhat blank still, and despite the letter of intent with PD Aerospace, we will continue to aggressively pursue other operators, whether those are space plane operators or people who want to do testing, research, and development. There are plenty of opportunities, and with a 1,000 acres, plenty of space to fit them all in. You can learn much more about Spaceport Colorado, the kinds of craft it can accommodate at CPR.org. For a moment, I want to address just one part of the state. Anyone west of Glenwood Canyon, from Rifle to Rangeley, Craig to Cortez, we're looking for a solo musician on the Western Slope to perform on Colorado Matters when we tape an episode in Grand Junction this summer. You can enter the Solo on the Slope contest at CPR.org. It's a chance to perform in front of a live audience at the Avalon Theater and later be aired statewide right here. Today, Colorado Springs resident Don Stratton will be honored for his bravery during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Stratton turns 97 years old next month. He's one of only five remaining survivors of the USS Arizona, which the Japanese attacked on December 7, 1941. Here's what happened in his own words. We were no escape there from down the hatches or down the ladders and everything because everything was all so hot you couldn't hardly do anything in one gentleman jumped out and I tried to close the hatch and got burned pretty bad but just pulled the skin off my arms and threw it down because it was in the way. Stratton was 19 years old then, a seaman first class in the Navy on board the Arizona when it was bombed and sank in Pearl Harbor. He was burned over two-thirds of his body. After he recovered, he re-enlisted in the Navy. He is the only living U.S. veteran to serve in both the first and final battles of World War II. Today, a new exhibit will be unveiled at the Colorado Springs Airport, recognizing his service. 
Colorado wouldn't be the destination it is today without the skiing soldiers of World War II. The 10th Mountain Division was based here, a special unit trained to maneuver and fight in high-altitude terrain. From Radio Diaries and Radiotopia, here is Joe Richman with the ski troops of World War II. Dan Kennerly was a soldier in World War II, and he kept a diary. Wednesday, February 14, 1945. This morning, I'm up at 9 a.m. I eat and work in my Jeep. Orders come down to be ready to move on a moment's notice. So I get all my gear ready, take a bath, and return to the company area. Sergeant Poshman tells me and Slim Crowder that Parker is down with a bad back and that one of us will have to take his place. Slim says he has a bad ankle and can't walk. Me, like a damn fool, volunteer to take his place. Why I do this, I'll never know. Right now, I'm really pissed off at myself. Kennerly grew up in the South, in Georgia. He had never seen snow actually stick to the ground. But in World War II, he decided to volunteer for an unlikely new unit of the U.S. Army, the Ski Troops. They were officially called the 10th Mountain Division. It began as an experiment to train skiers and climbers to fight in the most difficult mountainous terrain in Europe. Some of the men who joined the division were skiers already. Others had never seen a ski in their lives. They were also trained in snowshoeing and rock climbing, and they learned cold-weather survival tactics, like how to build a snow cave. With all this special training, the men of the 10th Mountain Division would go on to lead a series of daring assaults against the German army in the mountains of Italy. The 10th Mountain Division would also have one of the highest casualty rates of the war. Today in the podcast, the ski troops of World War II. Well, right now, we're on top at about 11,000 feet at the Santa Fe Ski Area. I'm Bob Parker, formerly of the 10th Mountain Division. I'm now 84, and uh, this is the 70th year that I've skied. I'll probably continue until I drop dead on the ski slope. (laughs) I think now I'm ready to go. I've got my poles ready. My oxygen is working. So uh, let's go skiing. All right, here we go. My name is Robert J. Nordhaus. I'm 95 years old. I served in the 10th Mountain Division from the time it was organized in 1942. My name is Nuke Elbridge. I was in L Company. My name is Al Weybrick. I was in Company K, 15th Infantry. My name is Dick Wilson, and I served with M Company, the 85th Regiment of the 10th Mountain Division. My name is Dan Kennerly. I was born in Georgia September 21st, 1922. I was one of the few people in the tent that never learned to ski. <laughs> The 10th really got started in 1940, I believe it was. The U.S. Army decided they were going to form a mountain unit. And the reason was our infantry just weren't ready in terms of equipment or clothing or anything for winter warfare. If we had to go into Norway or Finland or if we had to fight in the Alps, we'd have to know something about how to fight in the mountains. 
I heard about the 10th Mountain Division being formed. At that time, it was called just the ski troops. And I knew that I was going to be drafted sometime, and I didn't want to go into some outfit that didn't appeal to me. And, of course, being a skier, it was a very glamorous idea. I went and talked to our personnel man. Paratroops was filled up, so just out of the clear blue sky, I just said, how about the ski troops? He said, where are you from, soldier? I said, Georgia. He said, y'all ski in Georgia? I said, yes, sir. He said, where? Well, the furthest north I'd ever been was Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And I told him, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, of course, it's a big southern ski area now. He says, uh, what do you wax your skis with? I never had seen a ski. I said, beeswax. He kind of grinned and looked over at his assistant there, and he says, you know, I think this fellow can make it. <laughs> Seven days later, and I was on my way to Camp Hale, Colorado. It starts with a bugle blowing revelry over your bed when you arrive. Jack, that's a G.I.J. Camp Haley was in the Pando Valley. It's just across the Continental Divide on the west side. And we got there, and I got off the train, and I saw this big white snow bank seven feet high, and I thought to myself, what have I got my tail into? Me being a boy from the flatlands of Monroe County, New York, to get up there and see that type of mountains, I just didn't know they existed. Just, just amazing. So when we got to Camp Hale, they issued us wool ski pants, two kinds of parkas, wool socks, gloves with trigger fingers, and after a while you learned how to use them. Oh, I was excited by the equipment, the lovely white skis and the finest bindings I'd ever seen. I couldn't wait. F Company reporting for ski instruction, sir. Very good, Sergeant. At ease. You men are here to learn military skiing. Some of you have skied as civilians and followed certain standard techniques. You will find that the Army has added to the best of these techniques to create better ones of its own. That's all. Good luck and good skiing. It was a little more hazardous because you had a 40 to 50 pound pack <laughs> and coming down with the big pack and then you had these uh, bindings that didn't come off, bear trap bindings. You had to know how to fall or, or you'd break a leg. And here they come, shooting down the long white slope like a string of comets. Watch them do that first fast turn, still keeping formation as they change direction. Yes, those long weeks of training are showing amazing results. It was very rugged training. We lived in the mountains for weeks, working at altitudes of up to 13,500 feet. It was out in five, six feet of snow, and the night temperature would get down around 20 degrees below zero. But you had to learn to do the right things because you couldn't put a boy out in that below zero weather all the time unless he knew what he was doing. He'd be dead. We had a lot of older guys with us who knew the score, knew what to do. We had old mountain men. And if you listened to them, did what they told you to do, well, you didn't get frostbite. The old-timers said, 
rub bacon grease all over your face, ears, noses, fingers. It'll really help with frostbite, and it did. And if your feet are really cold at night, you wake up your partner, and he has to sit up, and you put your cold feet against his warm tummy, and after a while you switch, and he puts his cold feet against your warm tummy. It does wonders for feet that are starting to get too cold. We'd actually dig snow caves, and then with candles, just candles alone, it would ice up the inside of the cave, and pretty soon it was warm as you could be just because the heat from your body and so forth and the candles. But you could strip right down to your shirt and shorts and be very comfortable in a snow cave. And then I learned something very quickly, is you never drink any liquid after, say, 4 o'clock. Because the worst thing in the world is getting out of a nice, warm sleeping bag, 20 degrees below zero, to have your call of nature. It was cold all the time. It was snowy all the time and, you know, hunger. (laughs) But it also was overall satisfying because we knew after we did it a while, we were getting in better and better shape. We were getting stronger and stronger. No, you got to remember, the war was really moving along. After we finished our training, they, they really didn't know what to do with us. I think all of us would have hated to think that we put all that training in this and then end up missing the war entirely. Our division was probably originally designed to fight in Norway. But the Germans got there first. Then the next real mountain fighting that was going to take place was in the Apennines, in Italy. It was Christmas Day or something like that. They boarded us out of the ship and said, okay, you guys are headed for Italy. We were finally in a combat zone. We hoped, in many ways, just to prove ourselves, which I think eventually we did. In the closing months of 1944, forward units of the American 5th Army were faced with the task of breaking through these ridges of the German Gothic defense line. After the fall of Rome, the German army retreated to the northern Apennine Mountains. There was the Gothic line, and then there was the Winter Line, and that's where the Germans made their stand. Mount Belvedere was the highest mountain there, and U.S. troops had been stymied there for about six months. You have to realize that the Germans had literally years to prepare, number one, their defenses. And, I mean, they had fantastic defense systems set up in these mountains. And they did this because this was really the last bastion. As long as they control those strategic points, nobody was going to get on through Italy. Men who haven't been trained in the mountains look at a mountain, and they think it's too much of an obstacle for them. And our guys just said, we know we can do it. So our commanding officer, General Hayes, he planned a nighttime assault on Riva Ridge on the 18th of February, 1945. Here was the situation at the front as General Hayes saw it from his command post. On my left is Riva Ridge. It was essential to capture Reba Ridge, to prevent them from looking down on our flank and rear. 
Riva Ridge was a vertical granite on the south face of it. So you could stand on top and you can see miles and miles and miles out there. You can see everything that moves. At that time, the mountain was covered with snow, ice, very steep, very, very difficult conditions. And so at night, the Germans went to bed. They didn't even keep guard patrols going up there because they didn't believe that any American unit could climb that ridge night or day and drive them off of the ridge top. Well, they were wrong. Expert rock climbers began climbing the ridge's jagged rocks and, without making a sound, fixed ropes for the use of units that were moving up from below. Uh, even pounded pitons in, and they had their piton hammers wrapped in cloth so the Germans wouldn't hear them pounding in the pitons at night. These men were climbing with heavy packs, full ammunition. They got to the top of the rock wall. It was just about daylight. And they got into a pretty vicious firefight up there. The Germans counterattacked, but uh, they held them off, and they captured that rock wall. At dawn, a single platoon of Company A reported that it had occupied the northern end of the ridge. The 10th Mountain Division, still considered green, had chopped the key threat out of the Gothic line. It was an incredible operation. So it was the next night that we attacked Belvedere. That was a different, different cup of tea. There weren't that many casualties on Riva Ridge, but on Belvedere... There were a lot of casualties. You're listening to the Ski Troops of World War II, an episode of the Radio Diaries podcast with host Joe Richman. We should note some of the veterans' descriptions of battle may be difficult to hear. Well, I've always thought that uh, anything as important as a war, that you ought to keep a record of it, of what you did. I decided that I was going to keep a diary of it. I tried to be as accurate as I could. <clears throat> Monday, February the 19th, 1945. We assemble for the attack. The moon is just rising above Mount Belvedere. No one talks. I guess everyone is alone with his own thoughts. The order to move out is whispered around, and we begin to file up towards the line of departure. Our success depends on the element of surprise. Sergeant Postman repeats, All weapons will be unloaded. No weapons will be fired until after daylight when the order is given. That was a smart move, because they didn't know where we were. Keep in mind, it was laced with barbed wire, mines. The Germans were dug in. It was terrifying and difficult, but you kept on going because the guys next to you kept on going. I think I remember more than anything else was when the Germans started the phosphorus flares. Even though it was night, the whole countryside was just bathed in the... It's a very eerie light, kind of frightening. The ground is becoming steeper and more difficult to climb. The first rays of the sun bathe the snow with a yellow glow. It's momentarily quiet. 
After several minutes, an American machine gun opens fire. Its sound is beautiful. Everyone rises and starts running toward the saddle. All hell breaks loose. Men are yelling and screaming. Shells seem to be falling everywhere. A German machine gun fire opens up. The bullets kick up dirt around us and make a loud popping noise as they split the air nearby. The two men I'm following go down. They yell for a medic. I pause to help but remember the general's words to keep moving. We were fairly close to the summit when I got wounded. I was hit by, I think it was mortar fire, but I'm not sure, German mortar fire. And uh, right away I knew I'd been hit. In fact, I could see the two bones in my wrist sticking up in the flares. You know, a bullet that's being shot at you, if it comes close to you, it makes a popping noise. And they'd have artillery firing on us, and they'd be hitting close by. And uh, I'd start shivering, and I'd just shake like this. And uh, I guess it's fear, because I sure hell had a lot of it. <laughs> on the morning of the 20th, one whole battalion reached the top of Mount Belvedere. But the trick, as they soon discovered, was not just to reach it, but to hold it. As I cross a small stream, we begin to receive mortar fire. German shells land further down the valley. The valley looks peaceful. A farmer is plowing his field with an ox. How strange. Two powerful armies are locked in deadly combat, yet the farmer goes about his daily chores, paying no attention to the drama around him. That's the strangest thing I ever saw. As the 87th swung to the northeast to firm up the Belvedere line, evidence of the cost of that action began to show. The sound of battle begins to die down. We have taken the saddle, but there's not much left of C Company. I hear they have lost their captain and over half of their men in the assault. Their bodies are scattered along the slope. They are lying everywhere frozen in many different positions. Some have their arms or legs sticking straight up. Nothing is supporting them. Others remain in a firing position. There's a strong scent. At first I cannot place it. Now it comes to me. It is the odor of a slaughterhouse. What I'm smelling is blood. Belvedere was a bloody battle for the 10th Mountain Division, particularly, the, of course, the 85th, which really took the steep side. I think there were about three or 400 killed at Belvedere alone. Yeah. 6 p.m., the light is fading fast. I think of the friends I lost today. This morning, they were alive. Tonight, they are rotting in mattress covers. I stare up the endless sky and mutter, Thank you, Lord and fade into sleep. Belvedere was a tough, tough mountain to get. It was a stalemate until we made that breakthrough. Once we made the breakthrough, the German army collapsed and our division just kept going all the way to the Alps. Headlines bring the people of the United Nations the most sensational news of the war, the surrender of Italy. In New York, Americans of Italian descent are first to celebrate. Vino for victory.
When the war was over, an awful lot of guys went to Colorado, went to Wyoming, Montana, and found once they were there that there was a possibility of making a living in the mountains. I mean, they were ski instructors, they were ski school directors, they were college coaches, they were Olympic coaches. Ski resorts started by 10th Men, Winter Park, Arapahoe Basin, Vail. Just name any aspect of the ski business after World War II and you'd find one or more 10th Men involved in it. Jerry Cunningham invented the down coat. Bill Bowerman invented the running shoe. Hundreds of them literally went back in to the ski world Rightfully so, they can claim that they were the foundation on which the post-war ski world took place in the United States. Fight for this country before I was born. Well, that's the whole story. Oh, yeah, I miss skiing. I get up the top of a mountain and watch. <laughs> oh, but I'm sure I miss skiing, but you got to quit sometime. I skied till I was 90. <laughs> As long as my artificial knees work and my artificial eyes work great, why not ski? Oh, that feels great. <laughs> the Ski Troops of World War II from Radio Diaries and Radiotopia with host Joe Richman. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, the 10th Mountain Division still exists. It's now based in Fort Drum, New York, and has served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Since 2001, it's been the Army's most frequently deployed unit. Finally today, we'll take a moment to remember one of the greats in pro football, Hall of Famer Forrest Gregg died recently in Colorado Springs. He was 85. Gregg resettled in Colorado after an unforgettable career. He played 188 consecutive games as an offensive lineman for the Green Bay Packers. It earned him the nickname Iron Man. On this play against Chicago, Forrest executes the difficult seal-off block perfectly. Taylor gallops through the gap for a Green Bay score. You know, you and I have been lucky. We played all those years, and, and we've never really had anybody to come in and run us out of a job. I'm really thankful for that. That sound comes from an NFL film about the top 100 players of all time. Forrest Gregg came in at number 54. He also coached, leading the Bengals to their first Super Bowl. They lost, but it was still big for Cincinnati. This, this really warrants my heart. See all you people here, we, we know that we didn't accomplish everything that we intended to accomplish when we went to Pontiac. Next, next year, we want to invite all you people to Pasadena. Vince Lombardi, the legendary head coach for the Packers in the 1960s, said Forrest Gregg was the finest player he'd ever coached. Greg told the AP a couple of years ago that he was always surprised when he heard that. I think about the great players that we had on our football team. I don't know why he said it. I'm just glad he did. Football Hall of Famer Forrest Gregg. He died recently in Colorado Springs at age 85. 
So glad you could spend time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.